Everybody loves a good story. <clears throat> and I have a great story to tell you today. It's the story of future history. No, it's not science fiction, the product of someone's great imagination, but it's a true story. And it is called The Revealing of Jesus Christ. Let's uh, turn to the book of Revelation, because that's what Re Re Revelation means. It means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Just read the first two verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this story is about the future, things that will shortly take place. But where did it come from? Well, verse 1 tells us it came from God. It came through Jesus Christ then by means of an angel to the Apostle John and then through the Apostle John to all the servants of Jesus, including you and me this morning. But not only is Jesus telling the story, he is the subject of the story. Look at verse 2 again. It says, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, the word of God is another name for Jesus. He is the word. And then it straight out says, it's the testimony of Jesus. So this story in the book of Revelation, the story of future, uh, of future history, is an autobiography of Jesus. And there are special blessings attached to the story. Verse 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. There's a lot of people who don't read the book of Revelation because they don't understand it or they're afraid of it. It's a lot of difficult things to understand, and so they shy away from it. So I think the Lord has said, well, wait a minute, there's a special blessing for you. In fact, there are three blessings. It says, blessed is the one who reads the story. So I myself, this morning, am going to be blessed in telling you this story. Then there's a blessing for those who hear the story. So that means you. You will be blessed this morning as a result of hearing this story. And besides that, there's an extra blessing for those who take it to heart. That means they believe it and they put it into practice. That's how good that story is. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing for those who engage with it. Now, like all great stories these days, they get made into movies, blockbuster movies. So I'm going to suggest that God has got a blockbuster movie for us to see, full of action, visually stunning, as well as, as being soul-satisfying and morally redemptive. If you have difficulty imagining things and seeing things, then you're going to have trouble with the book of Revelation because you've got to engage your imagination and you've got to see what's happening. John is called the seer because he saw things and he's trying to get across to us. We've got to see it. 
And so the Lord has a movie for us. Now the movie rights belong to a group of three production companies. Like any movie, they appear first on the screen. These three, these three companies are so closely related that they are known as the Trinity. We read of them in verses four and five. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Three production companies. The first one, the name of that production company, the one who is and was and who is to come. We were just singing about him. He's the father. He's the eternal one. The story originated from him. The second production company is called the Seven Spirits Production Company. That is the Holy Spirit. Father God always works through the Holy Spirit in all he does. Now the third production company is Jesus Christ Production Company. All three companies are producing this movie. But there's more about Jesus. He's the star of the movie. He's not just the producer, he's not just the director, he's the star of the movie. And it's not just one movie, but it's a a trilogy, sort of like Lord of the Rings. To introduce the third movie of the trilogy, a brief review of the first two movies flashes across the screen. Note verse 5. It says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is the substance of the first movie. It was called The First Coming in which our hero, Jesus Christ, starred as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. That was the story of when he came to earth first, where he faithfully declared the grace of God and he died to secure our salvation. Then he rose from the dead and God exalted him to the highest throne of the universe. Today he sits as ruler of the kings of the earth. The second movie is entitled The Kingdom Advances. And that's the substance of the next verse. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is the story of the kingdom of God advancing in this world and it's been taking place over the last 2,000 years. It's still taking place today. It's how Jesus is sharing his love with us, bringing souls to himself, fitting them for service so that they can rule as kings and priests before our God. And then you get the trailer for the third movie in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. What a preview for a blockbuster movie. It is the climactic scene where our hero returns to earth in triumph. And how is it that every eye will see him? Have you ever thought about that? Now I suspect it's because his victory march will take at least 24 hours 
going to appear in the sky. And as the, the world revolves through its full revolution, every eye will see him because the, the light of his coming and of his presence will shine in every land, at every place, and upon every eye. Then all his enemies will mourn and flee in terror, looking for places to hide from his wrath, but there are no places to hide. Now, so exciting is this movie that the father declares that he will reveal all that there is to know. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. In other words, I'm the first letter in the alphabet. I'm the last letter in the alphabet. And in Christ, I'm going to reveal all that there is to know, all that you need to know. Let's read on in the text as the first scene of the movie unfolds, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance of, that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, the first scene is a small island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, where John had been exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian due to his Christian faith. He was most likely condemned to work in the marble mines there. On a particular day called the Lord's Day, he hears a great voice, and then he sees a great sight. This, now, this expression, the Lord's Day, we use it to mean Sunday, does not mean Sunday in this context because it wasn't called that in the early church. So I doubt that it meant Sunday. Rather, John, by the Spirit, is looking at the coming day of the Lord, of Christ's return. In other words, I was caught up into the Lord's Day, and the Spirit caught me up into the very day of Christ's coming. Now, the voice is Jesus' voice. Our hero, the risen Lord, appearing to John. The squalid, depressing circumstance of John's confinement only highlights the dramatic entrance of our hero. With a voice like a trumpet, he tells John to write on a scroll what he sees and to send it to the seven churches, churches which he himself was overseeing in Asia Minor. And then John turns and he sees who's speaking and he sees someone like a son of man dressed in glorious apparel. Now before we go farther in the unfolding of this scene, I want you to know that there is a pattern developing. This pattern will be repeated seven times in the book of Revelation and it gives the book its structure. And I believe that this is a wonderful way of looking at the book of Revelation and finding sense and finding order in this book. This is how it goes. First, Jesus, our lead actor, appears in the scene. And each time he appears, he's presenting himself in a different role with a different costume. 
Like any great actor, he's capable of playing multiple roles. He's not just a one-dimensional actor. Every time he appears, it's in a different role. Then he initiates the action that follows. Therefore, the key, in my mind, to understanding the book of Revelation and the message of the book of Revelation and our movie is this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look for him to appear. And then the action will follow after his appearing. Let me illustrate. We've already read in Revelation 1, we've seen him appear to John as the Son of Man, the risen Lord. And, and he directs John to write on a scroll seven messages to seven churches. Now, these messages are revealed to us in the next two chapters of the book, and we will be examining these messages in, in detail in the coming weeks. This will be the substance of our, of our sermons for the next couple of months, the, 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 the letters to the book of, uh, uh, to the letters to the churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we have a dramatic scene change. John is caught up into heaven to view the glorious throne of God and the worship that is taking place there. And in the right hand of God is a sealed scroll which contains the events of judgment to come. No one is found worthy to open the book except one. Our disguised hero enters stage left appearing as a tender lamb, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Those who have seen the previous movie of Jesus, first coming, know that in the Gospel of John, he's identified as the Lamb of God because John the baptizer said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus comes as the, as the lamb slain, and he takes the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne who is God the Father, and as he does that, worship is directed to the lamb from all of the assembled host of all of the angels and all of redeemed humanity who are standing before God. And they cry out, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain with your, and with your blood you purchased men for God. And as Jesus opens the scroll, the sealed scroll, breaks the seals one at a time, this initiates the judgments that are written in the scroll, which are described in chapters 6 and 7. Once again, Jesus is in control. Nothing happens, nothing happens until he appears on the scene. And when he appears as the lamb slain and he breaks open the seals, world history happens. And the seven sealed judgments are revealed. I want to tell you this. We live in a world that's difficult. We live in a world where history is happening at warp speed and things are confusing and things are dismaying. 
Do not be dismayed, brother and sister. Nothing happens in this world until Jesus makes it happen. Nothing happens until our lead man comes and says, okay, now it's going to start to happen. And it's all under his control. He breaks the seals. And the judgments come. The next sighting of our hero is in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Once again, the scene is in heaven. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 8. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then verse 3 and 4, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. So there's seven angels with seven trumpets that are ready to sound, initiating the next series of judgments upon the earth. But they're waiting. They're waiting for half an hour. What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for another angel who has a golden censer. A censer was uh, carried coals, and uh, they would add incense to the coals to make the incense r- rise up before God in the holy place. Could this be our hero appearing as an angel? Well, it's not the first time Jesus appears as an angel in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there were various sightings of an angel who helped Israel called the angel of his presence or the angel of the Lord. He was surely divine. And these were Christophanies. They were appearings of Jesus in the Old Testament. He appeared as an angel. And besides, look at what this angel is doing. No angel was ever given the priestly job of presenting the people's prayers to God. Angels are not intermediaries of our prayers to God. We don't pray to angels so that they'll take our prayers to God. We pray to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. So this can be none other than Jesus, the Son of God, looking like an angel. Only a human can represent us as our priest. Yes, this is our hero, the Lord Jesus. He is our high priest. The book of Hebrews states that he is our eternal priest. He always lives to intercede for us. And there's only one God and there's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Then after he has presented the prayers of the saints to God, He takes that same censer and he fills it with coals and then he throws the coals down to the earth. And when he does that, the trumpet judgments sound. The judgments are found in the following two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, do you get the picture? Jesus appears. The action begins. Nothing happens in this world 
that is apart from God's sovereign control. Nothing happens in this world unless it first of all passes through the hands of Jesus. He initiates the action. He's the Lord of history. Chapter 10, verse 1 to 3. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud and with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He, he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. So here is another angel. But he's a colossus, he's a giant. He's standing on the sea and on the land. Picture this, it's an awesome sight. And it's a picture of, of sovereign control over the whole earth. Everything that happens on, on land and in sea is covered by this great one. No mere angel has such authority. John is told to take the scroll out of the hand of this great angel and to, and to eat it. In other words, digest it, John, and then share it with others. It's a representation of John receiving his prophetic message from Jesus, exactly what is stated in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, God gave to Jesus the message and Jesus passed it on to John. So Jesus is appearing in another great role. Here, he's not the savior, the lamb, he's not the priest, he's the prophet. He's the one who is giving the message. He's the great prophet of our God. Now, the message contains the revealing of seven persons of interest that we read about in, in uh, chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. Some very interesting chapters of warfare in heavenly places and mentions about the beast, it mentions about the false prophet, it mentions about the dragon who was Satan. And uh, John prophesied concerning all of them. Where did he get that prophecy from? He got it from the angel, our hero, Jesus, giving him the message. Once again, this is the story. Look for our hero. See what he's doing. See how he's presented. And then the action follows. Nothing happens in this world apart from Jesus' command. All is under the direction of our Lord, who is the great prophet of our God. Even the Antichrist cannot appear unless Jesus says, okay, now it's time for you to come. Satan cannot do a thing unless the Lord says, okay, time for you to enter stage. Go ahead. And then the action happens. Jesus is in control. His word cannot be broken. Now the fifth sighting of our hero is found in chapter 14 and verse 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man 
with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated, who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Here, Jesus, our hero, is being portrayed as the great judge of all the earth. He's not a prophet now. He's not a priest. Now he's appearing as a judge. And he's sitting on a cloud, a high place, and notice he's sitting just like the judge sits to judge in the courtroom. And he has a sickle, which is an instrument of reaping. But in this case, it's an instrument of sorting out the good harvest from the bad harvest. He's judging the world. You know, God the Father, it says, judges no one. But he has committed all judgment to the Son. That's what it says in John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. When people stand before God as their judge one day, they're not going to stand before the Father. They're going to stand before Jesus the Son. Won't it be a shock to people who have used his name in vain? Won't it be a shock to people who have, who have dismissed his story and refused his love? Their judge is going to be none other than Jesus. Jesus, as the judge, takes the sickle and he reaps the two harvests. The first harvest is the, the harvest of good, the wheat harvest. Last week, Josiah spoke on Psalm 126 where we are engaged in reaping the sheaves of wheat bringing precious souls to Jesus. But then after the angel, our, our hero, Jesus, the judge, has reaped the harvest of good, he now reaps the harvest of evil. He cuts down the grapevines, and he throws the grapes into the winepress of God's wrath, and out of it comes the wine of God's judgment. And this is the signal for seven angels carrying seven bowls of God's wrath to one by one pour them out on the earth and great judgment falls as described in the following chapters 15 and 16. Once again, you get the pattern. Jesus appears in a particular role. And from that role comes the action. Jesus Jesus reaps the harvest of good, protects his people, and then he reaps the harvest of evil, and the seven bowls of wrath carried by the seven angels are poured out upon the earth. Who's in charge? Is it all chaos? No. Will this world end in, in chaos and, and, and uh, uh, at the hands of man? No. This world is going to be judged and adjudicated by none other than the judge, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's got it in control. The sixth sighting of our hero is found in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. It says... I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one 
knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of, his, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a wonderful and awesome scene. This is the climax of the book. Heaven breaking open and the king charging down on a white horse followed by his armies. And of course, it is our hero Jesus. And this is where every eye on earth is going to see him when he comes again in glory. His enemies, his enemies will scatter in terror and his loved ones will rejoice. And when he comes, he, he brings seven dooms upon his enemies. Judgments follow. Courtroom scenes follow. And Jesus adjudicates the evil. And then he initiates a time of great blessing upon earth. You don't want to be opposing him on that day. Because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here he is not the gentle lamb. Here he is not the sacrifice for sins hanging upon a cross as if helpless. Here he is the mighty Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's my hero. He's the great Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of history. The last sighting of our hero is awesome as well. It's found in chapter 21. And this is an interesting one. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So how can the unseen God, who is spirit, live in any tangible way with his people? Because you see, heaven is a tangible place for a physical people. So how is God going to appear in a physical way? Well, the Father does not appear in a physical way. He appears in the person of his Son. There's an interesting verse in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14, where it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word is, is a, like a tabernacle, like the, 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 the building that the Jews used to worship God in the desert in, in the Old Testament. That is the word tabernacle. He, the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. In other words, he took on a physical body. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, took a physical body. The Spirit doesn't take a physical body. God the Father doesn't take a physical body. So how does God, the triune God, live with you and me? The dwelling of God is Jesus. That's how we're going to see God in heaven. We're going to see Jesus. 
We're going to see him high and exalted upon the throne. And we, we will forever, by the Spirit, worship the Heavenly Father through Jesus. He is the dwelling of God. The Word become flesh. The place where God and man meet together. This is our star. This is our hero. This is the one that we're going to worship forever. We're going to meet him in person. Can you feature that, brother and sister? We're going to get a big hug from the Lord. We're going to see him face to face and be with him forever. And when Jesus comes in Revelation 21, he initiates the new Jerusalem, our heavenly home. Seven beautiful new features about the, the new Jerusalem appear in, in these final two chapters. Beautiful river, beautiful trees, beautiful buildings, beautiful walls, beautiful gates. That's where we're going to live forever. Who brings it? Well, Jesus is the dwelling of God. He brings it. Now, I want you to go back to the first sighting. Back in Revelation chapter 1, we've done seven sightings. Every single one of them beautiful. Every single one of them about Jesus appearing in a different role. Let's go back to the first sighting of our hero and look at it in more detail. Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. It says... I, John, turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, his head was, and, and hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Now the title of our hero here is very significant, the Son of Man. Ezekiel the prophet was called the Son of Man. Although given an exalted status, Ezekiel was just a man. But in, in, in uh, Dan, the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 7, there is a man who peers in the throne room of God. You can read it in verse 13 of Daniel 7. One like a son of man came with the clouds of heaven and approached the throne of God himself and was given authority and power and glory to rule over all the people. So the title son of man isn't just that I was born of a man born of human beings, it means this. Although from humanity, I reign as deity. And that's no one less than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The appearance of our Lord here is majestic indeed. A white robe with a golden sash as a priest and a king would wear his head and his hair white like wool. Now, that's not a product of advanced years like yours truly, but a perfection of wisdom. That's what the white head is about. His eyes like blazing fire, able to penetrate through any mystery and to see all truth. 
his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. You know, when the children of Israel would come to Jerusalem they, and they would see the, the temple for the first time as they came over the Mount of Olives, they would see two huge bronze pillars on either side of the, the door to the temple. Jachin and Boaz, these two great bronze pillars that stood right in front of the temple, as if God was placing his feet right there in that holy place. It's a picture of holiness. Jesus stands in holiness. It says in the scriptures that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Jesus is holy. He stands in perfect holiness. When people met the Lord in the Old Testament, God commanded them, take your shoes off your feet for the place you're standing on is holy ground. Jesus stands there because he's holy. His voice, like the sound of rushing waters, powerful and clear. You know, even in, in his humanity, Jesus must have had a great voice to be able to speak to, to over 5,000 people on a hillside in Galilee when he fed the, the 5,000 and everybody was listening to him. How could that be? Because Jesus had a voice. I'm just waiting to hear that voice. Wouldn't it be great to hear him speak, to hear him sing? A double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth, indicating authority and overwhelming power. His, his face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance, evidencing warmth of character and, and holy love. And if his appearance is awesome, his words even exceed that. It says in chapter 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and hell. Only our risen Lord can claim this. They echo the claims of God the Father in verse 9 where God says, I'm, I, I'm the one who uh, was and is and is to come. And here Jesus says, I am the one who is dead. I was alive and I died and I'm alive again and I'm, I'm here forever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. He alone holds these keys and he controls he controls all of life. He controls death. Another significant feature is where he's standing. It says in verse 12, he's standing amongst the lampstands. And the lampstands, these golden lampstands, what are they significant of? It, well, down in verse 20, it says, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. church on earth collectively, each individual church, large or small, is meant to shine out like a lampstand, shining out the glory and truth of God. But think of this. Jesus is standing with his church. He's standing amongst the churches. When I was in Africa many years ago, I visited some very, very little churches little mud huts with grass thatched roofs deep in the jungle where just a few people gathered 
But you know what? Holy ground. Why? Because Jesus was there. And Jesus is here today with his people. Jesus, the living Lord, condescends to walk among his people. He doesn't walk in high society. He doesn't walk with the rich and famous. He doesn't walk in the corridors of political power in Ottawa or Washington or wherever. He walks with his people in the churches. He cares for his own and he chooses to be with us. He, by his spirit, is with us today. He's with you and me today. Why? Because he loves us. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, a lot of people are down on the church. They, they say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't go to church anymore. I'm, I, I like to be spiritual, but I, I don't like organized religion. If you don't like the church, you don't like what Jesus likes. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I have met many, many Christians who don't go to church. I haven't met one Christian who was strong who didn't go to church. You can't be strong if you ignore God's people because you're not meeting where Jesus meets. Now, the question may be asked, why these seven churches listed? They certainly were literal churches of the time in Asia Minor. Undoubtedly, there were more churches than these in the area, so it is likely that these are representative churches representing, representing various strengths and weaknesses, and we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. Others see that they're not just literal churches or example churches, but they represent the chronology of the church age from the church of the time of the apostles down to today's church. More about that later as we, as we read uh, about the, the letters to the churches in coming weeks. But the big lesson here is that Jesus is the Lord. He's the head of the church. He not only cares for us, but he leads and he governs us. And this is indicated by the seven stars he's holding in his right hand. Now, who are the stars? Now, some people think that the stars are the pastors of the churches. But in that day, they, they didn't have organized uh, 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 clergy and they didn't have uh, uh, pastors like we have today. Not to say that Josiah isn't a star. But maybe not one of these stars. I would suggest to you that the stars are, are not a, a man or not an angel, but they're representative of the authority of that church however that authority was constructed. So he holds the authority of the church. That's the idea of him holding the stars. He is the head of the body, the church, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He's the Lord. He's our boss. And in these letters, he starts with a personal revelation of himself unique to each church. And then he commends the believers where commendation is warranted and he points out the deficiencies where deficiencies are existing. And then he renders discipline accordingly. Finally, he promises great reward to those who are faithful to him. He's bringing a letter to each individual church. He knows the state of the church. He knows the state of Oak Ridge. And he's with us and he's for us and he's wanting to reward us and he's wanting to help us. 
Never forget that the church is not ruled by the elders. It is not the pastor who is the head. It is not ruled by the majority opinion of the congregation. Christ is the head. We are all his subjects. We must answer to him. We must give an account to him for how we treat the church. He's the Lord. So we have seen that Jesus is the star performer in future history, and he's the Lord of all history, but he's the Lord of the, of the, of the church as well. But there's something more. Look at the response of John the, the Apostle. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. How often have you been on your face before God? That's where John was. He got down to his face. There was a famous preacher who was visiting in Toronto a number of years ago. I won't mention his name. He was a godly man, well-known uh, uh, preacher on TV. And uh, when Keith, my friend, went in to his bedroom just to see how he was doing, he opened the door, and the preacher was on his face, praying to God on the ground. Keith quietly closed the door. That's where we need to be, low before majesty. That's where we need to be. John was so overwhelmed by the presence and appearance of the living Lord that he fell prostrate before him, certainly in holy fear, but also in total worship and adoration. He was acknowledging that Jesus was his personal Lord. So the question is to be asked, what is your personal response to this exalted Lord? He's the Lord of history. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Do you love him? Do you adore him? Do you obey him? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? That's what he wants. Have you surrendered your life to his divine government and control? If you've not done this before, now is the time to do it. And if you are a believer, do not trust that yesterday's devotion will serve you today. Every day requires a fresh act of devotion. I've learned this. Don't live off yesterday's devotion. You say, well, I, I, I followed the Lord yesterday. No, today. Today is the day of salvation. And one thing I've done for many years now at the beginning of the day is I once again commit myself to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I'm yours today. This is your day. Do with it as you please. I will follow you. And I would suggest that that's a good thing for all of us to do. A real takeaway. If you really want to respond to the Lord appearing in the book of Revelation and how he's the head of, of all of history and he's the head of the church, then make him your head this morning and say, Lord, I'm going to bow to you every single day. My dear brother and sister, here's the message, the message of Revelation. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look for him to appear. And the action follows because Jesus is Lord of all. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.